you can't do it all yourself. You do need like good advice. And as you're scaling yep. a business, you need to surround yourself with people that understand you, your vision and what you need to execute on. Alrighty guys, greetings and welcome to the fifth episode of Two Where to Live, Two Rare to Die. Today's show has the legendary Matthew Vitali, CEO extraordinaire of Birchall. Birchall is one of the first licensed equity crowdfunding platforms to exist in Australia. It provides everyday Aussies with the opportunity to invest in private and unlisted public companies that they love and believe in. Birchall has one of the largest investor communities and has raised $65 million for more than 100 startups and businesses. This episode is about money and trust in business, the cheddar, the cheese, cashola. Explore the mind of Matt Vitali with us to learn about raising money for startups in 2021. You understand the big problem Birchall is solving and how powerful it can be for a brand that understands its value. Fun fact. Matt Vitali adores Plato from ancient Greece. More on that later. The show's about to begin, but first, a word from our sponsor. A brilliant startup like yours needs the best of the best on your team. Are you taking advantage of global talent? Level up your team for more success for only 33% of your usual hiring costs. Go to www.athena.io slash rare right now to learn more. That's www.athyna.io slash rare. So, um, alrighty, welcome to Too Weird to Live, Too Rare to Die, a podcast telling stories of founders, investors, and operators working to turn the world we live in uh, into a better place. So, Matt Vitali from uh, from Virtual, founder of Virtual, is with us today. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Beautiful. Yeah, no, really, really excited to chat. Um, yeah, uh, I'm a user of, of Virtual. <clears throat> I've got buddies who have been... Um, funded on the platform, which I'm sure you'll know when I, when we talk about it, and, and yeah, I love it. I think it's great. Um, so 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 super keen to chat. Before we jump into anything and get to know you, <clears throat> we're going to throw it over to Wallow, who's prepared uh, a little serenade. So um, wow, believe, believe it or not, believe it or not. So over to you, Wallow. <laughs> Are you going to put the lyrics up? Put the chuck the lyrics up too, Wallow, if you can. Let me put the lyrics for you. Oh, cool. I hope you like Frank Sinatra. Anyway. <clears throat> amazing it was kind of inspired by him but you know imagine him being black and beardless oh he was beardless well yeah yeah. okay Okay. uh okay (laughs) okay uh yeah look over there is my red Tally. Supporting businesses with ease. Wearing a smile, equity aisle on for a while. It's mad Vitaly. 
That's a mighty. I started laughing. That is definitely a first for me, and uh, we get a lot of mileage out of this drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we wanted to hear, Matt. That's what we wanted to hear. Um, Hopefully it's not the last time you serenaded, mate. Um, you know, first, but hopefully not the last. So, good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. Nice, Wally. Welcome to the show. So, 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 um, Matt. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear a little bit about about um, about virtual, a bit about yourself. Um, firstly, I mean, tell tell us a little bit about your your background and and you know upbringing. What what, what have we got you here? Tell us a little bit about Matt Vitali, I guess. <clears throat> yeah. Um, no, thank you. Uh, well, look, I mean, we're, we're in Melbourne. I've always lived in Melbourne. Um, I've travelled a bit, but, you know, I never kind of uh, lived, you know, um, or, or relocated overseas, if you like. Um, I lived in Vietnam for, uh, for six months when I was when I was 18. Ooh. I decided to do a bit of a gap year. But, uh, but yeah, love Melbourne um, and have always lived here. Um, I, we're in Vietnam, just quickly, Matt. We're in Vietnam. I did a uh, – I rode, I rode a motorbike from um, – uh, Ho Chi Minh to um, Han- Hanoi a couple of years uh, ago over a, few, high- over a few weeks, yeah. On Highway 1. Yeah, that, I mean, look, that, so that, that would have been one of my dreams um, to do. And and to be honest, I kind of toyed with that idea. Um, I read the uh, Motorcycle Diaries by Che Guevara oh, and kind of his experience. Yeah, doing so that. I was in Vietnam in 2000 and um, it was uh, it was actually a really interesting experience. I lived in Ho Chi Minh City. Um, my dad's best friend has lived there for just close to thirty years now, and mm-hmm. um, he's uh, my, my my dad's a chef in in hospitality, and uh, yeah, his you know, his friend had well, has catering contracts for like international schools and universities and things like that. And, um, a very eye opening experience for you know for a young man that's uh, you know grew up fairly sheltered upbringing and then yeah a bit of a culture, culture shock but uh, it was an amazing experience and I imagine yeah. your, your ride your ride would have been oh, yeah. scary sometimes the ride was wild the ride was wild uh, buddy that I rode with nearly died on the trip and I probably nearly died a few times too and just didn't know about it but but very um, very interesting that would have been a great way to um, to learn about the world when you're 18, you know, like uh, everyone in Australia, I feel like most people quite have a, have a sheltered upbringing, don't really understand how the world works and where the, where the 1% really, you know, like you got to think about that. And yeah. I think seeing, seeing Vietnam, there's not, um, not, not a whole lot of comfort. I feel like, you know, people you know really work hard to have what they have. So it would have been a great experience as an 18 year old to ground you, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And, um, yeah, just kind of seeing like what else was out there and um it was two you know it was broken up into two trips essentially i kind of stopped in vietnam and was there for you know a few months on my way to europe um my father uh, was born in italy and you know we've still got a lot of family over there so mm-hmm. kind of used europe or italy as my base to kind of you know, have a look around europe for a few months and then stopped again in vietnam on my way back but but that was like my my gap year if you like um uh before I really kind of, I suppose before I decided that university was for me or not. And um, I think I probably still took a few years to decide that. I, I did an arts <laughs> degree at, um, at Monash, uh, you know, majored in uh, politics and international studies, but I took like six years to do it. <laughs> and I had a lot of fun. Just, just cruising, just cruising. Yeah, pretty, like, pretty I'm here for the parties, guys. I'm here for the Friday nights. Pretty much. That, that's, yeah. Like, so um, I've kind of, I am, I am a lawyer. So, but I came to 
like studying law pretty late in the piece. Um, and it was actually, you know, my, Margaret, who's my wife now, she, she's a lawyer as well. And I was kind of, um, you know, finishing my studies, but doing other, you know, entrepreneurial type things. And when you become a lawyer, you, you need to go to the Supreme Court and get admitted and basically you take an oath. And um, it was actually a really moving ceremony for, for me. And I probably looked at the profession in a, in a different light to, um, you know, what I had previously. And uh, yeah, decided that um, actually I'm, I'm going to go back to uni and, and do a law degree. And I ended up doing um, what's called a, a JD, which is like a postgraduate um, legal degree. I was one of the first cohorts at Monash because um, I haven't always offered this. Melbourne's kind of moved to this model um, mm -hmm. now. Um, but I did my law degree in two years. So it was kind of like, yeah, five to six years to do the, the arts degree and then kind of, <laughs> <laughs> kind of ram through That's the law Wow. You just went down a notch in my book, Matt. <laughs> um, so how did you get into um i've got a i've got a buddy who's um well he's my housemate actually lives lives here with me um and he's a lawyer and um we're always talking about startup -y stuff he, he's a he's a lawyer's lawyer you know and he's works very long hours you know he's like understands the situation where all of his all of his mates are like killing themselves to become partner and this and that and I keep telling him you should get into startup land because he's just a, he, he would just love it. He would just really enjoy it. And he's kind of halfway interested, but, but you made that transition somewhat, you know, obviously. So we'd love to hear because it's not, it's not super common, like very institutionalized, straight and narrow like law, law degree. And, and there's one particular path most people go down and you veered from that path. How did that all come about? Yeah. Well, I mean, in many ways, I kind of got back to what, I felt were my roots and that was yeah. like, you know, being in business and creating things. And there's not, there's not a lot of room for that in private practice. So like I became a lawyer. Um, I was fortunate enough to be offered a position at Hall and Wilcox. Um, so I did my, my articles there. And then, um, you know, shortly after I moved to um, Ashurst, which used to be called Blake Dawson and ended up in the financial services regulatory team. Um, and I mean, I really enjoyed the work, uh, but, you know, I, I think the challenge or the perhaps disappointing thing for lawyers or frustrating thing for lawyers is because of the way that, you know, professional services are set up, you, you, you're billing for time and it's very expensive for um, particularly for smaller businesses. Mm -hmm. So you get involved pretty late in the piece, certainly as a junior lawyer, like you don't have access uh, to the clients as much. That's really something that the far more senior um, uh, people in the business have. Mm -hmm. um, you do a discreet piece of important work, but then, you know, the company will kind of go off into the sunset and execute on the advice that you've given them. And mm -hmm. It's actually, well, I certainly didn't find it very satisfying. Like, you know, mm. sometimes you get to read in the paper, like, oh, you know, I worked on that and they're kind of going and doing that thing now. But that yeah. was something that, you know, I found pretty hard to um, to reconcile in terms yeah. of my own satisfaction. Yeah. The other thing was, you know, my wife and I like started having children and, you know, um, growing a family and, just, you know, seeing the way that law firms are set up, like not, not wanting to be too critical about it because, you know, it's a different set of considerations that you need to balance if you're in private practice. And um, 
I just didn't see that like that that structure long term fitted with you know the the life that I wanted to build for myself. So yeah. I started looking further afield, and um, it was kind of you know it's quite natural for me because before I studied law, like I was interested in in business, you know, and you know lots of entrepreneurial endeavors. I you know my time in Vietnam, I, I was importing sugarcane juice machines. Shortly after I came back, I, I think I was probably about ten or fifteen years too early with that. But, you know, <laughs> you know it's kind Very of just classic. doing bits and pieces. Um, you know, like when I was at uni, I was um, kind of like working in in nightclub promotions and you know things like because I always um you know kind of just trying to do something creative and a little bit different um mm -hmm. but what I felt was once I'd you know trained as a lawyer worked in private practice I gained a lot of these really valuable skills that I think mm -hmm. have you know put me in really good stead in what I'm doing now like well clearly yep. because virtual's a regulated business but um I think I've got, and, and, and this is probably an insight that I, I think is, you know, relevant to your audience. Um, there's a bit of like, I suppose, you know, fear or skepticism in the, I find in the startup community often with lawyers and, and mm -hmm. I find that, you know, um, you know, the, the fear of having to spend a lot of money, right? Like, yeah. let's face it. So, you know, a lot 100%. of startups shop around for like you know the 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 cheapest lawyer and kind of talk to them as as little as possible and really oh, yeah. kind of engage people if they absolutely have to or if there's yeah. a problem avoidance first avoidance first really <laughs> yeah. seriously though i think it's it's fraught like it's a mm. really fraught strategy because mm. you know you've got to think like you can't do it all yourself. You do need like good advice. And as you're scaling yep. a business, you need to surround yourself with people that understand you, your vision and what you need to execute on. And mm -hmm. that's something that, you know, happens over time. So, you know, finding good lawyers, good advisors, um, and it's not just lawyers, it's just people that kind of, you know, augment your capability, yep. having good relationships with them. Um, it, it's something that I think all, you know, business owners really need to, you know, focus on that. That's what will set them up for success. And yeah, you look at or, or avoid failure, I guess, or avoid or help help mitigate failure and, and, and losses. I was talking to um, I was talking to someone from Carter. Um, yeah, uh, I think it was Carter. Was it Carter? Yeah, I think it was Carter. Um, in the last week, and they were talking about uh, misclassification of um, cap table and how Uber misclassified the stock that they um, gave to their employees and it, and it meant that they had to pay a truckload more tax and it put their, meant that their employees had to pay more tax than they would have had to because initially they were kind of like really gung-ho and didn't do the correct due, due diligence really. So, you know, if they had have had a good legal team, you know, advising them, problem solved or, or problem averted, avoided, whatever the word is. Yeah, so I, I agree. I agree with that. I think. Look, I mean, the other the other point I'd make is it's not it's um it's not just kind of like these problems, I suppose, or avoiding these problems, but like they're you know having advisors help you to make decisions that are going to be good for your business. Like you know, certainly in our business, we have a financial services license. You know, our goal is to build a culture of compliance, and mm -hmm. like that's not kind of it's not specifically illegal you know, a legal skill or a legal imperative. It's something that everyone needs to own. And um, 
uh, you know, particularly for regulated businesses like ours or like, you know, and fintech, look, fintech is booming at the moment. And yeah, um, it, like these are things like, and it goes to trust, right? It's not mm-hmm. just like not getting in trouble. It's dealing with your clients, dealing with, you know, uh, people that are using your platform. You need to um, like satisfy them that that you are, that you are trustworthy, that you know um, what you're doing and that, uh, you know, they, like they can trust you to provide, you know, uh, the services that you're providing. So. It's, the, it's the final stage of the sales funnel, really. No like and trust. If somebody knows who you are, they like the shit out of you. If they don't trust you, you know, you're not going to be doing business together. Absolutely. So f- fully, fully understand. So, so looking at you, you know, obviously um, we do a bit of prep before the shows. I'll, I also, I like to go in somewhat, somewhat blind and not, not do a, a, a whole buckload of research, but, but I looked at your, um, obviously your LinkedIn and your history. So, um, so, so barbecue festival, Southside Smokers, um, sounds like, sounds like a, a guy that does like a Friday night, you know, barbecue and a cu- couple of beers. So, so talk to us before virtual, you, you, you're still, um, you know, operating Southside Smokers. Talk to us about your first or a couple of, you know, entrepreneurial endeavors. Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned, like my dad's, my dad's a chef and, you know, still kind of involved in the hospitality industry. Like I, I literally grew up in a restaurant. So like I grew up in yeah. uh, the yeah. early, early days of, um, you know, in, in my early years. And my parents had a restaurant on Grattan Street in Carlton called Il Vicolo. And we lived in the house next door. And <laughs> when I was little. Um, so Italian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, you're like a meme of an Italian family. <laughs> But like we literally like our dinners when I was like you know probably up until I was about five, um, we would have dinner in the restaurant and then uh, you know someone would put us to bed next door like you know a babysitter <laughs> and all the cousin or something and then yeah. and watch us and then my mum would kind of go back to the restaurant and um, uh, and do service that night. So like yeah. you know quite literally grew up in hospitality. <laughs> And yeah. it, it kind of, it, you know, it stays with you. Like it's, you know, it's, it's in the blood. And um, there was a, you know, a, a competition as part of the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival you know, back in 2013 now. And um, my wife and I uh, entered it. Um, it, it was a, a barbecue contest, the first competitive barbecue contest. And, you know, my dad and I, like, when there's a barbecue on or, like, feeding a lot of people, you know, always kind of playing around in the backyard. And Porchetta is, like, our kind of, you know, tour de force, if you like, that uh, <laughs> people love. And, and um, Sorry. yeah, like, we, we, we entered that contest and we won. And um, then, as a result, like, we... Um, got an invitation to the world championships of barbecue. (laughs) (laughs) This is uh, an absurd story, but I've always thought the barbecue should be a sport. Let's be honest. (laughs) It it is in the States. Funnily enough, it is like, and they go absolutely crazy for it. Um, And it was just like, it was just down the, down the rabbit hole for a a few years on, um, on barbecue and met so many amazing people um, but like the, yeah, we competed. It's an invitational contest. You know, yeah. people in the States that work their whole lives, you know, like competing in barbecue contests on the weekend Whoa. to get an invitation at this. And then we, we found ourselves in, you know, Tennessee at the Jack Daniels distillery competing with you know, some <laughs> of the best in the world. Oh, um, that's so good. So what is a, comp- what is a barbecue, what does a cook-off competition look like? Like how do you get 
judge? Like how many rounds? It's like, I'm fascinated by this. Yeah, it's pretty intense. So um, it's like, it's usually in, it looks like a big caravan park. Like everyone kind of sets up like their tents, usually motorhomes, whatever, and they cook for the weekend. And, and it's a really great like social event. People kind of, you know, everyone knows each other and whatever, but like they're, they're preparing for what are essentially like four dishes. So there's a four main meats. Um, the first is uh, chicken, um, pork ribs, uh, pork shoulder and beef brisket. And these are the Kansas City Barbecue Society, uh, you know, kind of specific wow. categories. And then they've got yeah. like some other ancillary categories like, uh, you know, chef's choice and desserts and things like that. But um, mm -hmm. they're judged. They've got like, you know, agreed, you know, judging rules and it's pretty, pretty serious stuff. Wow. <laughs> I'm surprised you said desserts. I've never cooked dessert on the barbecue, but uh, I'm sure it, I'm sure it can be done. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, for desserts, well, some do use, like, you know, I've, I've had, like, a kind of a smoked chocolate cake that, like, people have given me and whatever, but, yeah, it's... Um, That's when you know you're really a barbecue aficionado. That's when you know you've gone a little bit too far, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's classic. So, um, so all right, cool. Um, now, I mentioned, um, you mentioned earlier that you're, you're um, before we started recording, or maybe it might have been recording, I don't know, but <clears throat> that you're, um, you're working from the comments today. Yep. I mentioned I've got a couple of mates. I used to be at the comments myself. Got a couple of mates. They were the they were the other uh, the comments. They were the guys that were funded by you. So I know the memo bottle guys. Oh, um, you, you know Jesse and John. Yeah. So because yeah, yeah. I grew up I grew up on the peninsula. So went to school with Jesse. He was a year below me. We were kind of mates. Not 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 super close mates, but I knew all his buddies real well. Vice versa, whatever. And I played footy with Jono same year in, with Jono, and we played like all high representative footy together for years and years. I know Jono like the back of my hand, and I'm good buddies with Jesse too. So. Um, so that's how I knew Virtual, and like I actually bought shares in Memo Bottle through Virtual, and it was cool because I was like, "Oh, the boys are raising some money," and it was they actually got funded, no worries in the end. But it was like the push towards towards the the deadline. They were really pushing it, and it was really cool because, um, and I want to hear about the experience of Virtual, but but from the user's perspective, I was like, "Oh, cool, my mates have got this sick company that I've followed since day one." They're raising money and they're, they're like pushing in the last couple of days. So what I did was like, I called a bunch of my mates and I was like, hey, chuck in 250 bucks. Like, let's all get like, I got like a bunch of my buddies, 250 bucks each. And we bought, because I was pretty strapped at the time. We bought like whatever that got us, like seven shares in memo bottle. And all my mates did as well. And it's like, it's a quite a unique experience, you know, to, to just get on the phone. Oh, you got any spare cash? These lads from the peninsula have got this cool company. They're doing really well. Let's get them over the line. Like call anyone else you might know. It's a very, it's very unique in, in, in fundraising and so forth. So um, yeah, t talk, tell us about the, the story of virtual, what you guys do, how you decided like this was a problem. There was a solution that we could, we could provide. It's a pretty, pretty fascinating way to build businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And I got to say, you're an amazing friend. That's like, uh, that's <laughs> really, yeah, really, really top-notch effort, um, you know, to kind of like be rallying troops for, for your mates. But I mean, that's essentially what it is like for, um, you know, companies, like it's, it's, you know, it's hustling. It's kind of con convincing like your friends, family, customers um, to invest in you. Um, there's, I mean, Perhaps if I address the the problem first, because I think this is a you know memo bottles like a really or what you've described is a really good example, and then I'll give a bit of background as to kind of how this is developed overseas. But like fundamentally, yeah. you know, you've got a business idea and you need to fund it, and let's say maybe you start the business, but 
you know, I'm not sure if you're like me, but, you know, you kind of have these awkward conversations with people about like what you're working on and yeah, you know, like I'll, I'll help you and, you know, yeah, tip some money in and then it then, and, you know, back to lawyers, right? Like then you need to get the lawyers involved, like how yeah. are we going to structure this thing? And, you know, yeah. and then it all starts to get a little bit, you know, too hard. And um, I think there's a lot, you know, like you've described, like there's a lot of goodwill for people to support people that they know in business endeavors, but it's just been too hard until now. Like, yeah. you know, how do you go about this? And in the old world, right? Like you weren't allowed to tell anyone that you were raising capital, certainly not on Facebook or, you know, Instagram, you know, um, because it's a securities offer. So like ASIC would shut you down pretty quickly. Um, right. And then, you, you know, you then need to go and get a lawyer involved and kind of agree term sheets with each individual person. And before you know it, like you're up uh, like minimum ten to $15,000 yeah. in legal fees alone. Killer, killer. Um, the, you know, this is one of the things where like craft beer has like really kind of given the world um, equity crowdfunding, in my view, you know, it's arguable... But, um, you know, Brewdog, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but like they're a, a Scottish yeah. independent brewer, the largest yeah. independent brewer in, in the world, like pretty big um, craft brewer now. I think that's what I'm on Shark Tank, the, 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 European, the European Shark Tank or something. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, no. Oh, look, I know Brewdog. I know Brewdog, yeah. I was listening to somebody talk about him just, just recently, maybe on this English um, startup podcast I listened to. But, yeah, go on. So like they're massive now, but if you think back to like when they, you know, when they started, um, they, they, they raised capital from their customers. They took the view that, you know, they wanted to shorten the distance as much as possible between, you know, um, the, the beer that they make and the people that, that love it. So, mm -hmm. you know, for them, it was very natural to kind of go out to their customers when they wanted to raise capital and their first cap raise, um, it wasn't even on a crowdfunding platform. Like they needed to get some exemptions from, you know, the, the regulators in the UK to accept you know, investment applications online. But like what they'd done is really pioneered this new form of fundraising where, you know, you can just kind of go to the crowd, just go to people and give them shares because, you know, there is other there are other forms of crowdfunding reward crowdfunding which most people will be familiar with you know kickstarter indiegogo but like you don't get shares in the company yeah. you get yeah. the product or, or mm -hmm. maybe you get the product um or content or, yeah, or, exactly um but but you know reward crowdfunding it's a good there's a good example that highlights the tension that exists between reward crowdfunding and equity crowdfunding and you know I, i'm not sure if you're familiar with like oculus um, the you know VR um, mm -hmm. company, but they crowdfunded the Oculus Rift you know many years ago on uh, on Kickstarter, and you know they had a target of about two hundred thousand, and they ended up raising two million, so you know yep. well over their target. But people were were go going to get the headsets in return for for backing that project. Within twelve months, um, the company had been bought by Facebook for two billion dollars, but yep. people were still waiting on the headsets. Yeah. And, you, you know, you would be right to feel, you know, a little bit aggrieved, right? Because these people, you know, backed this company. They're like, these guys are good. These, this is a good product. And, and I think this team's going to succeed. Had they gotten shares, it would have been over a thousand percent return, you know, within 12 months. But, yeah. you know, it's, um, 
it just highlights the tension between reward and equity crowdfunding. So yeah. you know, those people that invested in Brewdog in that first round, um, there was about a thousand of them. I think they raised close to a million pound. Um, they've, they've, you know, been able to, you know, well, they've realized close to a 3000% return. Last time I checked, it might be more yeah. right? like those early mm -hmm. backers. So like mm -hmm. it's kind of getting in companies, you know, at the early stage and, um, you know, kind of realizing a return if they, if they then succeed. Now, this isn't new. This is previously the domain of, you know, wealthy people and, yep. you know, venture capital funds and people that are out there kind of investing in the startups as an asset class. Well, what equity crowdfunding does is makes this asset class available to everyone. And, you know, I think this is a, pro a broader movement, you know, that, uh, People are investing in, you know, cryptocurrency. They're mm -hmm. you know, day trading on stocks. Um, mm -hmm. People are becoming a lot more interested in, you know, how they can uh, grow wealth and what asset classes are available to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I reckon it's sick. I love it. And um, and like I said, I'm a I'm a real proud user of virtual. Um, there are other things that I will invest in over time. I I want to in some years be, become an angel investor myself. Like I really love the whole the, the whole idea. One thing that I, I wonder, um, Matt, that I'll keen to pick your brain about is like, um, in terms of so a mom and pop investor, or like you know a young young bloke going through university who's got a couple of extra bucks and like sees a product that he thinks is he or she thinks is awesome and wants to invest, puts in a thousand dollars, early stage gets a, gets a few shares, the company does really well, but like with the companies that are going through equity crowdfunding. What are the chances of like a realistic exit for the people that have tipped in money? Because obviously with especially talking about VC stuff, it's like to the moon or die really. And it's one in 20, one in 50, whatever it is that you're going to get a return. Like, and because I'm assuming the equity crowdfunding stuff, it's probably like not as many of that absolute rocket ship trajectory. Correct me if I'm wrong. So like for somebody to put in money, um, and I give Jesse and John, you know, stick about this all the time. I'm like, when am I going to get me my investment boys? How's my 250 bucks going? What am I, what am I worth? You know, but, but I, I'm happy to support the boys and they're doing great. But, but for anyone else coming in, like what are the chances of somebody investing in a great company, you know, watching it grow, but then getting financial reward, you know, at the end of it. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, obviously, I need to be careful. I'm not kind of, you know, giving. I'm giving information or explaining things in, you know, broad principles. So, like, yep. people, if they're in any doubt, like, they should always um, get independent advice from a financial advisor. Or hundred percent. But, um, you know, if you're looking at an asset class or even, you know, an investment portfolio, like diversification is just one of these fundamental principles that people need to understand. And, and what that means is kind of spreading your risk across asset classes or even within an asset class. So, yes, you know, this is a risky asset class and there's pretty strict warnings that we need to put on offer documents and in ads that people need to know that, you know, it, it, they're likely to not get a return and, you know, they might lose the money that they've invested yep. um but you know with high risk becomes there is potentially high return and and i think that's you know that's the goal for a lot of people and whether it's you know one in 10 one in 20 one in 50 i mean that's it's pretty hard for us to kind of give insights because the the industry is very young in australia yeah. um but but that's really, you know, what someone that is kind of looking at this as an investment, as a way to grow wealth should have in their mind is, 
Um, not, you know, not all of these are going to, it's unlikely that all of these are going to take off. So yeah. you know, how can I spread my risk and, you know, hope that some of them do and that the returns for that one will cover, you know, potentially my losses or, or, or lower returns for the others. Mm -hmm. um, the way the venture capital funds work um, is, you know, like they'll have, you know, these kind of return the fund models or, you know, I mean, yeah. it, it varies obviously, but yeah, they're looking for these businesses that have this, um, you know, unbelievable growth trajectory or huge addressable markets that they're after. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm talking in broad terms, right? Because, you know, obviously yeah. all of them have different theses. Of that course. Course. But, you know, for a startup founder, um, you know, th that, that, means that what your business, despite that your business might be a good business and it would be profitable, um, it doesn't always fit what, you know, these venture capital funds are, are looking 100%. for. And um, in Australia, like there really hasn't been many options for early stage capital. Uh, we yeah. don't have a thriving, you know, investment culture like they do in the States. We don't have this deep pool of capital for early stage businesses like they do in, you know, in the states and other parts of the world, so you know, um, we we need to plug that gap. And equity crowdfunding has been doing you know a pretty good job the last the last few years um, at, at this. Um, and you know, finding homes, uh, finding you know capital for businesses that perhaps don't you know don't fit um, uh, you know what venture capital funds are after. And because of that, you know, like there's been some criticism leveled at what we do is like we're kind of, you know, funders of last resort, I've heard. But like mm. it's not really the case and it's certainly not consistent with the experience in the UK, which, you know, is far more advanced in terms of equity crowdfunding, far more mature than, um, than mm. us that have been doing it since about 2011. Um, mm. You know, about half of the capital that's deployed in, um, in, you know, equity crowdfunding platforms in the UK comes from professional investors, VCs, Mm -hmm. uh, angel investors and things mm -hmm. like that and we've started to see that happen yeah um obviously at the earlier stage but we've, we've seen you know multiple times venture capital funds uh investing alongside retail investors in offers that yeah. we've had on virtual hey 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 let me tell you something interesting about hiring right now it sucks it's hard it's also expensive but it doesn't have to be if you hire remotely with Athena, you'll skip the hurdles of having spectacular people on your team. And no, you'll pay far less than you think. We save businesses like yours up to 70% of typical hiring costs. That's up to 80 grand per account executive person per year. You could use that leftover cashola to scale. What are you waiting for? Head over to www.athena.io slash rare to learn more. That's www.athyna.io slash R-A-R-E. I would definitely wouldn't look at virtual as, as last resort investing. I, I think it's like, I mean, if you're talking about venture capital, they want Canva, you know, they want Canva, they want Atlassian, they want, they want, and and that is a, that's like 0.0001% of the businesses out there, startups out there, you know? So um, when you're talking about, um, when you're talking about Australia's um, capital um, like market, I guess, like globally, you said we're really far behind. I was listening to, um, I think it was Atlassian, mentioning it, I just mentioned Atlassian. I think it was a, a podcast with those, those, those boys. Um, 
recently. It was definitely one of Australia's older, most successful startups. I think it must have been them because they were talking about the fact that, you know, the landscape 20 years ago when they were building the business, because obviously Atlassian, Australia's probably biggest success in terms of startup, you know, that of Canberra or whatever, um, at least recently, Atlassian, yeah, they're famously like bootstrapped for a very long time. And I was listening to this podcast with, with um, one of the founders, can't remember uh, who it was, and they were talking about the fact that 20 years ago, that was the only option. You know, there was no other option for them. So it was like, yeah, we bootstrapped because we had to, you know. But in terms of like a global sense, <clears throat> where do you think we fit in like the, the VC market? Because like you see the, the Blackbirds of the world and Airtree and so forth, like growing bigger funds. I, I follow them all on LinkedIn and, 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 and so forth. And, you know, the, the investments are getting larger and larger, some successful exits. But like if you look at Israel, Israel, you know, thumping startup community, massive money, huge amount of unicorns and exits, of, you know, whatever. Um, obviously the US, Europe's probably more mature. Where do we fit in the whole thing? Like how, where, where are we at Australia and Asia Pacific? Um, I mean, look, there are various reports out, but like we're always, you know, far down, certainly in the bottom half. Um, you know, there was a, a report by uh, LaunchVic, I think towards the end of the year that, you know, M Melbourne's startup ecosystem in particular was like, you know, um, in the bottom half. And yeah, um, I mean, the way that they look at this is it's not just the VCs, but it's, you know, angel investors and LaunchVic has done some really great work to help, you know, groups of people formalize their angel networks. So they're in a position to kind of write checks at the, at the earlier stage for businesses. And like that, that's what we really need to be doing is just looking at, you know, all of the different pieces of, you know, I mean, it's an overused word, the ecosystem, but it's true, right? Like, you know, uh, to kind of create this, you know, this this culture or, um, you know, innovation culture or like the, the willingness for people to start businesses, um, you know, you need to, like they need to have uh, capital available to execute their plans because, you know, what we're seeing is, you know, founders are, um, you know, like maxing out credit cards, you know, mortgaging their home if they've got them, you know, like done, anything that done they... Done both of those. Yeah. <laughs> What, what, In the whatever, past. yeah, exactly. Whatever you need to stole do. money from my grandma. <laughs> yeah, it's like you just got to do whatever you, yeah. you can to get it done. Yeah. But um, and that's that you know that that's why and you know all all credit to you know the Atlassians of the world and others that have succeeded in spite of the difficulties that you know that we've had. But um, we need to do better as you know as an industry, particularly if. Um, you know, we're going to kind of, you know, I suppose shift the productivity of this nation away from the things that we've made money on in the past. And, mm -hmm. you know, like it's, you know, still selling resources, still heavily dependent on, you know, things that we've traditionally been dependent on that can't continue, you know, into yeah. the future. We need to find a, a different way. And, you know, I like to think that um, equity crowdfunding has an important role to play in that because, you know, if, founders look and see the successes of companies that have raised capital and then they go on and execute their plans and become bigger businesses, then, you know, it becomes less of a leap of faith and more of a, you know, kind of a, a reasonable thing for talented people that are within organisations to think, I've got a business idea and if I yeah. quit my job, you know, I can probably get funding for it and, and yeah. uh, you know, and away you go. So. Yeah. Um Interesting stuff going on in, in terms of like the fundraising landscape because like we said, um, you know, especially in Australia, 
years in years past, it was quite quite difficult. Um, you know, our angel and VC network is growing. Do you look at um, Do you look at platforms like revenue based financing platforms that um, Cap Chase and Pipe in the United States come to mind? I know Matt Allen has a um, Tractor Ventures as revenue based, you know, based out of Melbourne. Do you look at um, <clears throat> just in a general sense? Do you look at platforms like that as a competitor to like your model? Or do you look at it as it just adds to the pie, so to speak, and and more money, more more uh, more growth for everyone, and more all, all the better for the startup ecosystem? Yeah, look, all, all the better. I, I suppose you know, um, I mean, our direct competitors are, are the pe- people that are providing the same services as us. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The you know, in terms are there many? Of, uh, look. The, the industry consult. There's probably about 16 licenses that were issued in the first kind of six months that the the regime started, but all of the activity is is pretty much taking place on three three major platforms. Gotcha. And, you know, w- without sounding boastful, but you know, Virtual's um, facilitated around 70% of um, of all of the funds raised under the regime, which we were pretty surprised about in terms of how quick that consolidation happened. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, at the outset, we're talking to the big dog here, guys. Just, just uh, <laughs> we're talking. We're talking to the big dog. That's well, good. Yeah. We we kind of like. I suppose we don't really focus on. We've always focused on doing good work, and mm-hmm. you know, I suppose we looked to the UK. Like we're kind of inspired by what that regime has become, and mm-hmm. really decided at the outset, like we need to be a volume platform. Like we really need to make this as accessible as possible to as many businesses as possible. So that meant refining our processes and, you know, providing what is a pretty, you know, sophisticated service, um, you know, very efficiently and cost effectively for businesses. And, you know, and I think the proof, the proof is in, you know, the, I mean, we've, um, we've hosted over, over 90 successful offers now since 2018. Yeah. And, um, it's, uh, you know, over $60 million raised on the platform, which, um, you know, we're really proud about, but like, it's been really, um, you know, important and, and hard work to, you know, refine the process. And it, it, it can always be better, but that's, you know, that's our focus. How do we kind of make this as efficient as possible for businesses? Yeah, I think 90 is a lot too. Like <clears throat> I spend, we're going to um, potentially raise some money later in the year. I spend a bit of time on Crunchbase, you know, looking at different, Angel networks, VCs, and, and what have you. And, you know, you see recent investments or total investments. You know, Crunchbase has all that data. I mean, ninety investments is a lot. You know, that's that's like that's 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 a lot in two years or three years. Um, <clears throat> hey, I wanted to ask. Yeah, Sorry, just before I just want to circle back because yeah, I, I mean, just what you've asked about like the other funding sources. This is an important point because we discuss this with companies a lot, right? Like when you look at at larger businesses. You know, they'll usually have a CFO and the way that they fund their operations, like there's a funding mix, right? Like there's a little bit of equity, there's a bit of debt, there's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, grant funding, um, yeah. you know, all sorts of things that help them execute their plans. Um, larger companies can be more strategic about this because, you know, they've got the skills and the capability in their team to think about this. They're also kind of, you know, transacting more material amounts of capital Mm-hmm. These are all really good practices for early stage businesses to get into, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, and all of all kinds of capital has, you know, advantages and disadvantages. And that's what the yeah. company needs, needs to balance, right? Equity capital, yeah. it's dilutive. Like you, you're selling part of your company, but 
you know, you don't need to pay interest on it necessarily, right? But well, cost of um, goods, revenue-based financing has cost cost of goods attached. Exactly. So mm. you know, a, a company really needs to kind of figure out what 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 makes sense for them. You know, are, are these funding sources even available? Like, you know, bank bank debt, like that's just not available for a lot of businesses. So like these are the trade-offs. But in terms of where companies get this capital from, like we're kind of you know like agnostic in the sense, you know, if we can play a role, that's great, but like, it's got to make sense for the company. And then if, you know, if it makes sense for them to kind of get funding elsewhere, and that means that they're going to execute their plans and, and, and go on and be a big company. That's awesome too. Cause that's, that's why we exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so in terms of like getting people onto the platform, this is just a question that I, when you were, when you're talking a few minutes ago, it kind of came to mind. I was just wanted to ask before I forgot it, but um, in terms of, so I, I would assume, I'm not, not sure, you, your target market is like in, like institute, institutional investors or people like really interested in the startup scene or how, how much of your communications goes to um, like the people that want to help the founders? So what I mean by that is like friends, family, is, it, is there a portion of your communications or like your whole, you know, the target market is a part of that, that demographic, like the people that want to tip in and, and, and be part of the ride that aren't expecting a X amount return on investment, so to speak. I'm just going to open my back door because my dog's whinging. <laughs> I can I can hear you, but I'm worried he's going to, um, you know, he's going to do a number two's next. Uh, all good. Got to sort that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, so, I mean, th- there's a few... There's a few things to cover in that in that question. Um, perhaps I'll start with like Virtual's audience. Virtual's audience, I think we've got close to 100,000 users on the platform. Um, we never sell we never sell that to a company when we're talking about doing a crowdfunding offer. Like we never say to companies, you know, our database is just going to perform for you. Like for, for too long, this is what we've seen. You know that other corporate advisors and people helping in the early cap, early stage capital space have been doing right. You, the model is you cultivate a list of investors and then you charge companies for access to that list. Yeah, um, we can't guarantee the performance of, of our of our network. Um, yeah. You know, to say to a company that you know that we've just got investors that are itching to invest in your business, we did it the other way, or we do it the other way. So, in an environment where we can advertise these offers, you know, for the first time, really, securities offers can be advertised on social media. These were the fundamental game changers of you know of the law. Um, we put all of our effort in working with the company to tailor their message and find the most appropriate audience for them. So gotcha. with that in mind, like our audience is the, you know, accumulation of all of the audiences of the companies that we've hosted offers for. Now, is there cross-pollination? Yeah, absolutely. And we're kind of seeing that happen increasingly. But the way that, that we position that to a company is like that's that's the cream. Like you get access to the list in our newsletter and you know, by being on the platform. But a platform is designed in a way that every company has their own profile page. Like it'll be the same URL for their lifetime of using the platform. And all of their marketing activities drive people as a first step to that page, even ours when we're you know, supporting a company with our marketing. So it's, it's really finding the most appropriate audience for each company. Now, how does a company you know, do that? Like naturally, it's you know, the people that are close to you is probably one 
you know, sphere. And then like the largest sphere is, you know, your customers. And then the largest sphere mm-hmm. is people that are interested in your business, but perhaps aren't customers yet. Mm-hmm. And then kind of it grows and grows. Mm-hmm. Now, are institutional investors interested? Absolutely. And we kind of help, you know, companies to identify those or they may have already been in discussions with those. Um, and, you know, like the way that you, you know, close one of those investors will be a different approach to closing, you know, some of the, you know, the other, some of your customers or people that you know. Um, mm-hmm. But like ours is a vehicle, like, and, you know, in the same way, I, I use superannuation as, as an example, right? Like sometimes people talk about superannuation as though, you know, it's a financial product, like, you know, in and of itself, um, but it's actually not like it's 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 like a vehicle to aggregate like multiple types of financial products like in in effect like you, you know the fund is investing you know on on your behalf or if you got you know your own super fund it's it's not superannuation is you know a vehicle to aggregate multi, multiple types of investments that provide for your retirement equity crowdfunding is a vehicle for you to aggregate multiple types of investors to buy shares in your business. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, people often talk about like the valuations and, you know, that, uh, you know, how, how these offers are priced. Um, you know, we say to people that, you know, uh, or companies that some investors that are only investing, you know, a few thousand dollars or like even smaller amounts. They're probably not as price sensitive. You know, you've got these groups of people that are just like, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, they might not even look at the offer document, right? They're just like, shut up and take my money. Like, I'll just, I love what you do and, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm in, right? Mm-hmm. But someone that's going to write a check for 50000 or or 100000 like, they're going to be more price sensitive and the things that they're going to care about might be a bit different to the things that, you know, a smaller investor might be interested in. So, you know, it depends. Like, if a company wants some of those larger checks, like, they're going to have to, you know, be aware or mindful of positioning the offer in a way that um, that will entice those kinds of investors. But it, it's something that we work with, you know, um, work on with each with, with each company because every company is different. Yeah. My next question is going to kind of like go go. Uh, not contradict, but um, considering what you've just told me, this this question's a silly question. But but like in a in a general sense, so in a general sense, you've just said every company is different. Understand fully, hundred percent. But in a general sense, so when a company is is pitching and they're preparing their their deck, they're getting ready for a, a round on virtual. Regardless of you know who they're pitching, what are the key things that somebody needs to to show in order to like get people excited about the opportunity? Like, well, if you're going like you know, pitch deck 101, like these are, these are the key things that, that a business needs to take into account. Yeah, so, I mean, this is where, like, the law is actually really helpful for mm-hmm. us because one of the things that, you know, it still frustrates me is, um, like, how how diverse, you know, a lot of pitch decks are or even, you know, IMs, like when people kind of prepare an unregulated offer document, you know, um, the thing, and I imagine this, you know, this will frustrate lots of investors is just kind of seeing like the different approaches that people take to, to making an offer. Um, you know, for us, like we've got minimum content requirements that need to be complied with under the Act because every offer needs a, a regulated disclosure document, the CSF offer document, which is essentially a cut down version of a prospectus. So like it's a, it's a light version of what you would need to prepare if you're a public company, you know, mm-hmm. IPOing on, on ASX. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, it's actually a really good 
discipline for companies to get into early because it'll prepare them well for you know stuff that they might do yeah. in the future. Yeah. But, but that document kind of tells us, well, you know, you've got to explain about the business. You've got to explain about the business model. You've got to explain about the business strategy. You know, explain about your financials. Like all of these things, which actually they seem pretty simple, but it's surprising, like how um, how often companies kind of get you know get it wrong or need a lot of support and guidance to actually get it right. So. You know, the business model's a key one, right? How does your company actually make money? We see companies that, you know, particularly companies that have, you know, like an impact or social purpose related to their business, they spend a lot of time like talking about sometimes pages and pages um, when it can really, you know, it can be done on a page. But this is an investment opportunity after all. So like people are really concerned to know like how is your business going to to make money? Does the model actually work? Um, Mm -hmm. The business strategy, what, what's your plan to grow the business? Like it's, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, all like pretty kind of self-evident uh, stuff, but actually kind of going through the process and having to produce an offer document, you know, companies often tell us through it, they're like, actually that forced me to think really critically about my business. I feel that we're much better now or have a better sense of where we're going and what we need to do. Um, having been through this process, and it's probably one of the the biggest ancillary benefits of of mm. the crowdfunding regime. Yeah, it makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Um, cool, cool. So, so virtual, as I said, the memo model guys, you know, great success. Um, but like, what other um, companies have come through that have you been, you know, just really stoked to be a part of? Um, you know, big successes using the platform. I'd love to hear, just like, you know your favorite company come through and, and, and what working with virtual has kind of allowed them to do, you know, following on. Yeah. Look, I mean, um, it's kind of, it's like uh, asking me to choose a favorite child. Like, kind of Sophie's, favorite. Choice. Yeah. Sophie's choice. Sophie's <laughs> choice. Um, I kept joking that it's, I've got three kids. I kept joking that it's Leo, my youngest, but uh, I've been told to stop <laughs> doing that. <I'm> probably <laughs> Put my kids in therapy later, later on in life, but um, well, they'll be spewing. But um, the yeah, look, I mean, so look, all, you know, all of the companies are different. Like they, um, you know, we've done some really big raises that obviously, like, we're super proud of. We've done some really small raises, or you know, comparatively smaller raises, which you know, we're proud of all of them. You know, one of the smallest ones that we've done is a you know a company called Needlecalm. Um, so this is like a medical device that helps kind of, uh, help people with needle phobia basically. And, um, you know, medical devices are pretty hard to raise money for. And, um, you know, we raised 120,000 odd, you know, last year, like in the midst Mm -hmm. of the pandemic. Now this product is available and, you know, we're in the midst of, you know, one of the largest vaccination programs the world has ever seen. Yeah. And it's helping people with needle phobia to actually kind of get vaccines. So we're wow. super proud of that one. Um, you know, others, um, you know, Capricorn Power is another one. Uh, you know, they've raised over, I, I think they're probably the, the most prolific crowd funder. I think they, they're having their fourth raise now. Now, this is an engine. Fourth raise on, on virtual. Yep. Oh, right. I've never even thought about that on virtual. Right. So people go through like, kind of like, is it like a seed series? A? So like they, yeah, interesting. I, I actually hadn't thought about 
Coming back for multiple rounds. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, look, often a company will come to us and they're like, I need $2 million. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, that that's fine. Like, they know what they need. But mm-hmm. we run an expression of interest process first so we can kind of tell them, backed by data, this is how much demand we think is out there for your offer. Now, yeah. we go through that process. If the computer doesn't say two mil, you know, we ask the company, like, you know, could, you know, could you execute meaningful plans with less? Yeah. And, you know, Cap- Capricorn Power was in, in that, that category, right? Like their first raise was a few hundred thousand dollars. Um, but just to explain really briefly what this business does, they've created a, a heat engine. So they turn waste heat into electricity. So, you know, like any industrial application that produces waste heat, it can run through this engine, produce electricity, and then kind of be fed back into, into the company, reducing. Absolutely. It's unbelievable. Um, but Ooh. now they've, uh, you know, they've uh, created a, you know, another engine that kind of helps them turn, you know, like waste material into biochar that can then be used for, you know, a variety of applications. But that process uses heat and therefore, you know, increases the, you know, the, the usefulness of their engine. Um, They've, they've, like they're just kicking goals repeatedly, but they've come back again and again. And each time they're like, well, we've hit the milestones that we said we would the last time we were raising. Yeah. Now we need more capital. Um, you know, are you going to back us? And, and investors have. They've been following on. They've been finding new investors. And it's a really great story as to what the, this regime can do because, you know, conventional wisdom is raise more capital than you need and do it as few times as possible. Well, mm-hmm. this is different. This is like raise mm-hmm. a manageable amount of capital, execute on your plans, communicate well mm-hmm. with your investors and come back when you need more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because because the, the model works when if somebody's raising 200K, it's like other um, crowd funding and crowd raising platforms where if it gets to 199,000, it doesn't close, right? So you have to hit the, the target. Yep, minimum yep. and a maximum target. Yeah, so yep. you have to get past the minimum target within the offer period. Ideally, we like to you know do that within the first few days of an offer. And if you hit the max target, we have to close the offer. So you can't be you can't be oversubscribed. You can only be fully yep. subscribed. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I never thought about the um the the multiple raise thing. Cool. Well, hey, um, yeah, I think it seems like a um like you guys are having such great success. Um, I've got a couple more questions, but I'm um, going to throw it over to Wallow. Wallow's got a, 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 a few questions that we'll normally go through with guests. Um, I'll probably have one or two at the end and we, we can kind of kind of wrap it up. But yeah, Wallow, over to you, mate. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, Matt, yeah, what books are you currently reading? Book or books? And... In the past, what books have had like the biggest impact on you? Yeah, um, I actually got asked this question a few weeks ago and I couldn't answer. <laughs> and the reason why is because I've usually got like four or five books on the go. Um, and Great it's reading. because, I've, you know, I'm reading, you know, like history type books or business type mm. books. So, you know, I use mm. my Kindle and kind of uh, whatever takes my, my fancy. Um, a, a couple of books that I've read, you know, over the last couple of years that are really, you know, I think affected me a lot or, you know, given me a lot was um, The Ride of a Lifetime, which is Bob Iger's um, uh, oh. biography. Yeah. My, my girlfriend um, bought it for me uh, three or four days ago, uh, three or four weeks ago. 
and it's I've just finished Sprint um, Design Sprint book, and it's now the Bob Iger book is now on my bedside table. Haven't picked yeah. it up and read a page yet, but sick, awesome. Is it good? It's yeah, it's. I mean, it, it's amazing, and um, uh, you know, I kind of uh, in lockdown last year, I subscribed to Masterclass for for a little while, um, and. Uh, yeah, I watched kind of his, you know, answers on that. But like particularly for, you know, someone in a leadership position in business and basically for everyone, like he's, he's a really inspirational character. And a lot of the, um, the stories that he's got to tell about his dealings with Steve Jobs and, and you know, the Apple deals um, are, are fascinating stuff. Um, similarly, Shoe Dog, I think I've read that some time ago, but like it's, you know, um, Phil Knight kind of, describing a lot of problems that I think, you know, founders face regularly. Like we've hosted offers for companies that manufacture products and cash flow is just always a problem. And really surprised to see, you know, even how late in, you know, Nike's development that was still managing cash flow, um, cash flow issues, some existential, you know, yeah. moments in that business. Um, yeah. And then um, another one that I've read very recently is, uh, um, I think every I think it's called Everything You Need to Know About Advertising, written by a mate of mine, um, Ben Shepherd, uh, which is mm. you know really uh, really good. I recommend it. And um, finally, Cult Status by uh, Tim Duggan, and that's like on the yeah recommended list for basically any company that's thinking about well, basically every company, but particularly any company that's thinking about crowdfunding. How do you you know achieve cult status? Cool. Uh... I have another question. Uh, if you had a time machine, when and where would you go? If you had like one hour to, you know, go and come back, what, where would you go? When would you go, rather? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I think um, yeah. probably ancient Greece, you know, have a chat with uh, have a chat with Plato. But I'd probably need to kind of brush up on my ancient Greek before I went back. But, uh, yeah, classical Greece. Cool. Yeah, cool, cool. Okay, final question: uh, What has made you change your mind lately about how you see the world? What has made me change my lately, mind? Yeah, lately about how you see the world. Um. That's a, that's a tough that's a tough that's a tough <laughs> question that's that's one of those questions you know uh, this is another stitch up question while i yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i think um, very deep look I, I think particularly the struggles that we're having in australia at the moment uh in managing covid um i kind of you know um I think there's a lot that the government's done well but there's a lot that uh i think is pretty unforgivable like the rollout of this vaccination program is 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 been pretty woeful and it's um upsetting because we're in such a good position um but yeah. you know um yeah like just in the context of lockdowns around the country you know melbourne's fortunate to not be in lockdown at the moment which is like weird because everyone else is <laughs> um and i just I feel like of, i feel like going into lockdown just from a habitual perspective yeah, yeah <laughs> But it's one of those things that you like if, um, you know, like you, you kind of give everyone a pass because it's unprecedented and they're kind of figuring things out. But like that was last year. It's like, you know, in business, if you're dealing with things for the first time, like you kind of put systems in place, you take those learnings and then you, you know, you, you cover them. But 
I just don't understand, you know, why we're, we're making mistakes um, and we're not kind of, you know, on top of this as we should be. Uh, if it was a, you know, if it was a business, um, you know, the share price would be tanking and, you know, management would be replaced. So True, true. Thanks for answering my weird questions. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for asking them. <laughs> um, cool, cool. Um, hey, Matt, um, one final thing for me. Like, if you were to kind of, if we were to be talking in, um, say, you know, 20, 2026, 2031, um, you know, about virtual and what you've been able to achieve, you know, what are you going to be, what are you going to be telling me? Yeah, I think um, I'd like to be telling you that, you know, virtual's kind of expanded uh, to, you know, providing a range of services to businesses to help them, you know, raise the money that they need and, and execute their plans and, and engage with the audiences that we help them build. I'd like to tell you that Australians have um, really, you know, taken to investing in startups and early stage businesses as a very kind of common asset class and that virtual has a lot of information and, um, you know, available for people to make informed decisions about, you know, uh, the, the, this asset class and, and what they'd like to invest in. And um, I'd like to be telling you that, you know, virtual has kind of taken all of these services that, uh, you know, we've kind of proven up and developed in Australia around the world and, uh, you know, is, probably one of the largest um, uh, providers of early stage capital in the globe. Great. Sounds good, man. I love the, uh, love the vision, love the product. Like I said, my friends have used it successfully, really helped their business. You know, I think it's a very, it's a very slick product. Like it's really good to use the UX, UI. It's just, it's great. So I'm team virtual all the way. Um, yeah. And uh, that's pretty much it. So thanks for coming on the show. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. It's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thank, thank you to all of you. And great to meet you all. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Matthew Vitale. Yeah, that's <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> all righty. Cool. Well, that's it right. from up, us, Matt. Appreciate it, mate. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Yeah. Awesome. That's all for now. The conversation was truly eye-opening for me. I hope it was for you too. Thanks for listening and a massive thanks to Matt Vitali. If you enjoyed the show, please support us by sharing this episode and subscribing on our YouTube, listening on Spotify and every podcast platform available on the bloody planet. Two Way to Live, Too Rare to Die is supported by Athena, produced by Matthias Rosenberg, creative direction by Josefina Cordoba and hosted by Bill Kerr and me. Walo Olakpoju. Peace. So you just got funding and you're excited to grow. You're going to need people, great people, but not so fast. Finding them will be very difficult. Hiring them will be pretty costly and paying them will be your biggest expense. After all, a strong team will build an epic business. Yep. But what if I told you you can save two-thirds of those hiring costs by employing global staff? Think of all that runway money you can save. We'll find the talent you're looking for and hire them too. Go to www.athena.io rare right now to learn more. 
That's www.athyna.io slash R-A-R-E right now.